Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honoured today to be joined by Bill Nikolazakis. Bill is a keynote speaker and a growth consultant and an executive coach with an organization called Levels Growth Consultants. And what inspired me to talk to Bill today is his keynote speech that he's done around servant leadership, the servant leader turning your business from good to great. Servant leadership is something that we've touched on a little bit around the show, but not in any depth. So I'm really excited to unpack it today with Bill to understand where Levels is coming from, to understand his views about servant leadership, what it is, why it works, and give some actionable tips to everyone out there in the audience about how you can embrace servant leadership either as a business leader to grow your business or if you're a team leader to generate an amazing high-performance team. So, Bill, without any further ado, I'd love to hear more about your background and what led you into this path around being an executive coach and helping organizations the way that you do. Thanks, Mick, and thanks for having me on the show. So, my background is as an entrepreneur. I started my first business when I was 21, learned some hard lessons between 21 and 25, and around 26 years old, I started a, a property research business, a digitally enabled business that I sold to an ASX-listed property platform named iBuyNew. And then I fell into corporate. So in, in a couple of years later, I became their group CEO, managing director. And then I was the chief revenue officer of another ASX listed property technology company called PropTech Group. A lot of mergers and acquisitions in there, a lot of you know new teams coming into environment. So learn a lot about you know integrating teams, how to build cultures that were you know existing cultures that you wanted to maybe improve and sort of brought me to out of my corporate life. I've always loved small business. I get I'm very easily persuaded to join really cool projects. So I get persuaded to go back into corporate when there's something really cool happening. But um, I've always loved small business. I've always loved working with small business owners. And to be completely upfront, it was no massive plan. I left corporate and a few people reached out for my help and I built a business around it. And now we, you know, I love keynote speaking. It's, you know, I say if somebody would pay me enough to not have to do anything else, that's what I'd love to do. I love speaking to audiences. I love researching. I love researching keynotes. I love putting them together, and I love seeing the reaction of a crowd when you know the penny drops on a certain topic. Yeah, that, that's what led me here. So I work with a lot of small businesses, whether we consult with them on big projects, you know, improvement projects, sort of to your medium-sized business or larger, small ones, or you know, we do executive coaching for small businesses as well to help them increase their level. So congratulations on your success, Bill. Well done. Great career yourself. And now you're helping others to forge their businesses and forge their careers. There's an interesting thing that I picked up when you were talking. And here's a lesson for everyone out there. If you're sitting there and maybe you're at a fork in the road, as Rusty Gaylord would call it, and you're wondering about what to do next, have a listen to some of the words that Bill was using there around you know, multiple people were coming to him and asking him around these same questions. And if people are coming to you and asking you for your advice, asking you questions around the same topic again and again and again, that might be a signal that's what you're good at and where people see you adding value. So that was the first thing I took away. What I'm curious about, Bill, is the obsession 
I'll call it that, with small business. What is it about small business that inspires you? Yeah, interesting one because, you know, I didn't come from a family of small business owners. You know, my dad drove cabs for my uncle. My mum was a seamstress and then there was no seamstressing jobs, so she became a kitchen hand. So I didn't really have any background. I guess I'm a, I'm like a lot of us, I'm a failed sportsman, you know, like until I was 19 years old, I never really worked. I got paid to pay very low level soccer, football. Um, and, you know, I tell this story often, but um, I was sitting on a bench at the second tier of Australian football at 19 years of age. And I had this stark realization, it was freezing cold, I remember this day like it was yesterday i had this stark realization for the first time ever and this is legitimate when i was 19 i thought wow i'm actually not going to be a professional footballer that plays in europe and it changed my whole life i actually quit football i played the season out and i quit the next year i just knew i wasn't going to make it i just had this overwhelming feeling that i wasn't going to make it and i just threw myself into something else and that just happened to be working in finance i was always good with numbers so work, work, went into finance when you didn't need any degrees to get into finance, it's to serve my age. And I don't know, I just had a feeling that I could do something a little bit better than the way it was being done. And that was my first business. And it all sort of happened from there. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, I mean, the actual service we provided was actually pretty good. It just, I had no business, no idea how to business, run a business. You know, so they, those businesses failed, not because of, you know, we didn't provide a good level of service or it wasn't a good idea. Just, we just didn't know the basics of running a business because I had no one around me. And then I also had, I guess I was lucky enough to have an older brother that was been very successful. You know, had up and downs as well, but very successful in business as well. Tech guy, you know, seeing him in business, even when, you know, early on when things were really tough, I just loved the idea of building something for yourself. And if people often ask me, you know, when I was in finance, uh, I'm someone that researches things deeply. So when I'm in finance, I like the word no, learn everything I could about finance. Then I was in property and then I did, and then technology, and I learned everything I could about technology. And people always say to me, oh, you must love technology. You know everything about technology. But no, I just, I love building things. And I don't care what the industry is really. I love, like I said, cool projects. I love building something special. And you know, that's why I don't really care about, it doesn't have to be as a business owner. You know, I've been more than happy to be an employee. I'm not one of those people that people say to me, oh, you've owned business for a long time. Can you be an employee? No problem at all. I've got no issue at all reporting to people. I just love building great things. If that means doing it as a manager somewhere or doing it as a small business owner. I've just found that the stages of businesses that I love the most are that early stage business. And typically to do that, I start my own, but it's not necessarily because I have this massive passion to start my own business. It's really just because I want to build something pretty cool. And sometimes doing that by yourself is the best way to do it. Yeah, really interesting there. I'll share with you what I'm taking away. So first is those moments of realization. Most of us have them in our careers. It's just whether you're paying attention or not. So for you, it was sitting on a cold bench beside a freezing cold football field. For someone else, it could be just, you know, on the commute to work one day or sitting in a meeting and stopping and thinking, you know, what are we doing here and why are we doing it? So those moments of realization are really interesting. And then for you, what I'm seeing is someone that realized relatively early in that journey that you like to build things, you like to start things. And sometimes, no, I wouldn't say this is a universal rule, but sometimes the easiest way to start something is if it is your own business, because you you are calling the shots and as long as you've got some capital available or enough capital to get you started, you can start something. Whereas if you're inside a company, you've usually got to convince a whole bunch of other people to say, hey, I want to start this mini business line or whatever the case might be. Is that what I'm hearing there? This passion to start things? 
Definitely. And, you know, I guess a small business is awesome. And starting businesses is so fun and, you know, bring an idea to life, that seed of that idea. And there's nothing better than being able to build a team from scratch in your own image, right? When you take, when you go to another business, you know, there's a team there already, you got to sort of mold them. And, you know, all those things are great, but it's also really hard. Like it's really, really hard. And you're going to do things you don't want to do, right? You're going to do the admin, you're going to answer the phone. You're going to, if you come from a corporate world where, You've got layers of people underneath, you know, it's going to be a, a rude awakening, the amount of, you know, just low level stuff that you just have to do because you don't have the funds or you shouldn't be paying other people to do those things. I don't believe in this. People say to me, oh, what's your hourly rate as a business owner? I just think that's so, so disingenuous because how many hours are you working? You know, who's working eight hours a day as a business owner, right? Like, I mean, you know, really, it's not really your hourly rate. It's how much sleep do you need to survive and how much family commitments do you have? And then do everything else that you can, even if it's a low-level task that is not that expensive because, you know, you're owning a business, right? Yeah, there are a lot of people that, that do those math and say, oh, if, if it's a task that you can outsource for something less than your own rate that you should do so. But there are moments in time in a small business owner's life where you are doing the grind, you're doing everything, you're everything from the janitor to the CEO all at once. There's a few great things because you are the one that can make decisions and you can decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And you can do things like handpick your team as you grow, like you mentioned. But anyone out there that's getting dreamy eyes, be aware of what Bill said about it's hard work too. One of the common misconceptions I'd love to run past you, Bill, is this thing about, you know, you become your own boss and you run your own hours and you, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And I can say every successful small business owner that I've ever seen leave corporate to go and start their own thing, when they did so, they worked harder, not less. It's the wrong reason, right? You don't leave corporate to go into your own business to work less. That's the wrong reasons. You know, there is some truth in, there is flexibility, you know, like I cooked my kids dinner tonight, took a couple of hours off, did all that, hung out with them, then jumped back on. There, you know, there is that flexibility. But when you get to a certain level in corporate, that's there too, right? I mean, you know, you got to, what's that saying? You got to do what you got to do until you can do what you want to do. And that's the same in corporate, you know, sometimes you got to work the long hours, do the, the grunt work until you're afforded a certain, you know, position in that business where you're still going to work really hard, probably harder than ever, but you might have the luxury of doing that a little bit more on your own terms. And that's the same in small business. You know, you do have some, you have more flexibility for sure, but you'll often find that you're not able to take, to use that flexibility because you're, you know, you're putting in some pretty hard work. You know, I don't care how smart you are to succeed in small business. You have to work hard. You know, I'm sure there's some people out there that have had some luck and all that along the way. But, you know, if you're relying on that, you're in trouble, I think. Yeah, well said, Bill. Now, in many countries around the world, small business is the engine room of the economy, right? So it makes up a, most of the businesses are small businesses, huge amount of gross domestic product, driving the economy around even mini economies around little towns and all this kind of stuff. But many small businesses fail, many, like the stats are all within the first five years, a very high percentage of small businesses fail. Why do you think that is, Bill? Well, I'll take it back to my experience. Yeah, the two businesses that I had that failed, and by failed, we didn't go bankrupt or anything. It just means that they weren't making any money. We just stopped doing them, and you know, we lost a bit of money along the way. But they didn't fail because it wasn't a good idea, and they didn't fail because we didn't provide a good level of service. They failed because we didn't know the basic principles around running a business. We weren't careful with our expenses. We didn't understand the cost of service, You know, which in small business, you know, these are some things that maybe you don't understand that, that you might not be super aware of. It's not about how much it costs just to get a client, how much does it cost to serve them, all those factors around, you know, how to run a business financially stable in a stable environment, 
you know, being able to be, I think a lot of small businesses that fail might have some initial success because if in business to succeed, you know, you're not running one model forever. You're constantly changing, adapting, improving. And I think there's some of the reasons I think businesses fail. I think probably the biggest reason though is going back to my early years, just that maybe it's some knowledge around the financial aspects of the business. And you can't, you know, I used to say to my accountants, I hate this sort of stuff. You do it for me, but that doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work. You need to have at least a basic understanding of it. And if you don't make, there's never been an easier time to learn it. Jump on YouTube, you know, type in a few different things. You'll get the basics, you know, listen to some podcasts like this. You know, I'm a massive podcast listener. That's why I love doing them. You know, and there's a lot of downtime driving. You don't need to listen to Hamish and Andy, although they're super funny. You know, there is some things you can learn along the way. So I think just having a really deep understanding of, you know, the, the basics of running a business is probably the reason why people, most people fail. All right. So a key one around business acumen. And if I can compare that maybe to the corporate journey, most people that climb through the corporate ranks, they go through almost a school of hard knocks approach to learning business acumen along the way. They're learning something new all the time. And you impressed me earlier with your growth mindset that you do really dedicate yourself to learning everything about the thing that you're doing and kind of marrying that up with the things that you love. So you're learning and you're learning around things that you love. In small business, you're thrown in the deep end. And I think it's not just business acumen. Well, maybe we can unpack further but you are, you're thrown into the deep end. And what you said before about, oh, I'm just going to outsource it to my accountant. There are certain levels of accountability that you just can't do that. You need to have skin in the game. You need to have your finger on the pulse because it's your money and you need to make sure that you're building some of those business acumen muscles. How does that sit with you? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, obviously you need a good accountant and you want them to do a lot of that work for you, but, you know, they can't look at your cash flow and see which expense isn't necessary and which is vital to the business. These are things that only you really know. So you've got to be involved and you don't have to love it and you don't have to, but you just got to be involved. I mean, it's a lesson I learned really early on and getting some basic understanding of it and then making sure you're asking a lot of questions, understanding that side of it. Because it's a really important part, you know, I'm going to rip off a term here. I'm going to ad lib, but the CEO of Agents Agency, a real estate franchise group, so Manos Fintakaka says this, he says, you know, profit is sanity and growth is vanity, right? So yeah, it's not all about just growth. It's you know, about, you know, what does that growth mean from a profit perspective? When are you actually making money? And these are the things that your accountant can help you with, but you need to be in the room and asking questions. Yeah, yeah, spot on. And then it comes back to some of those things that you're talking about between cost of service and, and the like. So you can know that you are generating margins that will sustain the business, right? Yeah, very, very good. All right. So we've covered business acumen. The other one, like if we come back to this whole janitor to CEO thing, the other thing is you're immersed in this world where you could have to do everything in the business for a while and you're going to be on that learning journey. What do you think of the other missing ingredients that most people that go into business don't realize that they're missing until they get into the deep end of the pool? Yeah, know the gaps, you know, know your gaps. It's impossible to be good at everything. Just know your gaps and don't be afraid to ask for support. You know, in fact, I'm going to add one thing to the what make businesses fail. A lot of time, I think it's ego. You know, you, uh, listen, I know this. Maybe you are the best financial advisor, accountant, bricklayer. Maybe you are the best at that. Doesn't mean you know everything there is to know about running a business, right? 
there's things that you need to get help on. Um, and that's why the coaching piece is really important to me. You know, when I deal with all these different industries, I'm not going to be a better electrician or whatever it is than that person. I'm not trying to help there. What I'm trying to help with is looking at knowing business principles, what's going to help them get to the next level of their growth. And I think that's a really important part of it, just understanding where those important parts of it are, of your business that you don't, that you lack knowledge in and finding the help, whether that's a full-time employee or whether that's asking your accountant or whether that's bringing in a business coach or whatever it is. In fact, so Levels is my main business, but I own another two businesses that I'm non-exec in or quasi non-exec director in. We quickly found when we started one of these businesses, it's a national law firm, digital law firm that we built. So I built a digital product, teamed up with a lawyer, a good friend of mine, Rex Afrasiabi, and we started a company called Bond Conveyancing. And we had this great tech product that we built, all the legal knowledge in the world, but we knew we lacked one key area. And that was someone to execute on recruiting and managing high quality conveyances and property lawyers that are going to produce an amazing experience. We knew we had this great tech that's going to change the game, but if you didn't provide a good level of service, you could have all the tech in the world and it's useless to you. So we went and found a lady by the name of Morella Rice who had the exact opposite strengths to us. And she's built this amazing team now that's helped us grow into one of the fastest growing law firms in Australia in the last year. So that, you know, just understanding what those gaps are, we knew we weren't good at that. It wasn't our strength and we found someone that fit that. You know, sometimes it's an employee. You know, maybe it's if you're starting a business, maybe you've got to consider a co-founder. You know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to, to do that process. All right. So I'm hearing essentially three things there, Bill. The first one is the self-awareness. Self-awareness to understand what you're good at and what you're not as good at, all right? And the second part is having an open mind, a growth mindset, a learning mindset, and to not pretend you're always going to have all the answers. And then the third one is then to go and find those people that will compliment you. And they could be team members that you're recruiting that complement your skills. Like don't just go out there and recruit a bunch of people that are exactly like you. Go out there and look for people that might complement your skills. Or like you said, it could be your broader team could be contractors or service providers that are helping you, or it could be a business coach. Tell me more about the relationship between a business coach and a small business owner. Yeah. So when I think about any kind of advice part to any business owner, it really depends on the life cycle stage of that business. And it's so different at different stages. You know, when you're the CEO of a company with 40, 50, 60 employees, really your job is strategy and recruitment. That's it. You know, hire really good people that are going to improve your business and keep them accountable and then, you know, strategy. Now, if you're a small business owner that's got three employees and you're looking to take it to the next level, I'm going to give you very different assistance and very different advice than that CEO with 50 employees that, that's trying to grow that business. So with that CEO, we might be talking about, okay, what's your go-to-market strategy? What kind of, you know, what's your acquisition strategy? How are we going to get the growth? Where you are financially? You know, how do we keep the top players more accountable and get more out of them? How do we improve culture? With the smaller business, it might be, hey, okay, we've got three employees, you've been doing sales and all the other work, and then you've got a couple of other helpers. How do we turn that into an actual business where, you know, you've now got other people actually executing the main service offering where, you know, a lot of times I get service owners that say, I don't ever want to stop being a mortgage broker or an accountant. I want to always do that. They're like, that's fine. And, you know, that's a great way to think about it in business, but you're doing more than 30% of the business you're not a business owner, you're self-employed, which means that you're still working for someone. It's just that that's someone's yourself, right? So you're not really running a business per se. You're sort of working for yourself. And that's a distinguishing factor. If you want to grow a business, I think that's where I'm more of, of help. And 
Different business coaches work in different ways. Sometimes it's industry-specific people, you know, mortgage broking, how to write more loans better. You know, I'm not going to help with that. I'm going to help with how do we build a structure and how do we build a model that's going to help you grow. So yeah, different life cycle stages need different help. In my consulting business, you know, I've gone in and, and helped in sort of like an outsourced or a fractional chief revenue officer role. We've looked at sales and marketing only. That's the only thing they wanted me to help with. And we've built structures around that, team members, changed the model, changed the pricing, you know, and looked at all that. So it really just depends on what people are trying to achieve. And then finding the right, I think, you know, more away from me and more generally, finding the right coach that you've got a level of respect for that you'll actually take on their advice because you can't help anyone if they're not willing to take on. So you have to be someone that you meet and you say, hey, actually, that person knows what they're talking about and I'm happy to listen to them. Because if you don't think that, then don't deal with them because there's no use. Even if they're great, you're not going to take their advice on. And the second thing, I'm just making sure that, you know, there's a lot. I've never actually been, Nick, I've never been in an industry that's so saturated with people that are so underqualified. You know, like someone that's been, you know, never run a small business, maybe successful in a middle management corporate role in that industry, then advising that industry on how to run a business when they've literally never run a business before. You know, and there's a lot of people out there. Some great ones, some really great ones too, but there's just so many and a lot are very underqualified. All right. So I'm hearing picking the right coach for your business. I'm hearing going in there with a coachable mindset that you're ready to listen and learn. I'm hearing that picking the right coach includes thinking about the size of your business, the stage of the life cycle of your business and the direction of your business, and then identifying someone who's been there before. Someone that's actually been through that pain understands you. They understand the pain. They understand your dreams. They understand what you're trying to achieve because they've done it before. That's who you'd be looking for in a coach. All right, very good. I'd like to stem on to another key ingredient. You mentioned about some of the pivots that people need to make during business. So they might start being the best accountant or the best bricklayer, like like you were saying before. But if they're truly going to grow a business, their role has to change. And they find themselves doing less and less of that and doing more leadership. And yet many of them have fallen into a small business and have never been through any particular leadership training, etc. How do you address the leadership deficit with small business owners? Can I go a roundabout way of answering that? First of all, I want to make it very clear that I think personally, there's very few times and a hired CEO will do better than the business owner running their business. Very few times. If you know you're very good just at one thing and you're horrible at running a business, maybe that's a good idea. But most of the time, I think you should do it yourself. And it's easier to learn how to manage people, the processes involved in that, you know, the leadership aspect of a business than it is to have the passion and the drive and all those things because it's your business, right? So that's a very important point in that. I think most business owners, in a very, very high percentage of them, you know, should really think about doing it themselves and then hire people around them that have that knowledge that they might need or, you know, use a business coach or whatever it might be. So, you know, really, if you've never had a leadership role before, you don't understand, you know, the simple things that make a big difference, you know, what kind of meeting cadence should you have? You know, what do you do in a one-on-one? How do you recruit someone? What's the process to do a successful recruitment? You know, what are the steps? How do those steps happen? These are all things that are important, but that are learnable. If you want to put the time in, you can probably learn them yourself online with enough time. But realistically, you know, there's outsourced HR companies that can help you with stuff like that. There's, you know, business coaches, there's all these things. Instead of hiring an outsourced CEO who, you know, no matter how lovely and great they are, probably not going to have the same passion and drive as you, right? And you're going to have to pay them a pretty penny. It's, it's often much better doing it yourself. And then building the people around you it goes back to that, that point before, just building the people around you to fill the gaps and 
if it's a really important part of it, try and learn it yourself, you know, and get some level of knowledge on it yourself. Yeah. Okay. So coming back to learning mindset, growth mindset again, leadership is a huge determining factor in the success of your business. But the good news is exactly what you said, Bill, is it can be taught, it can be learned, it can be improved over time. Now, what led you to come on our show? We were intrigued by your keynote speech that you do around servant leadership. So tell us what servant leadership means to you, Bill. You're probably going to get used to this, Mick. I'll tell you in a roundabout way. So the reason I'm interested in servant leadership was when I first started businesses, I always had this mind that I didn't want to be one of these business people that was cutthroat and didn't care about people and did the wrong thing. And I really just wanted to start. I actually, I hated that. I really didn't want to be any part of that business. And one of the reasons I don't love corporate is because there's a bit too much of that in corporate, you know? But so I started these businesses and I was built this mindset that I'm going to be really nice. I'm going to want everyone to love me. And I'm going to run this process where everyone's have a happy work life and that'll give me great results. And when you're a really small team and you've hired really good people, genuine people, and they all know you well and you're close to them, sometimes that can work. But what I quickly learned was that being a good leader doesn't mean you're soft and fluffy all the time, right? And sometimes being a good leader means you're having those difficult conversations in a very respectful way to help improve someone, or if they're not the right person, to help them understand why they might be better off doing something different, right? Now, that's still, to me, is doing the right thing. And I came across this fantastic book called Good to Great which did a survey on some some businesses over a 20-year period. And, you know, what was really interesting to me was the types of leaders that were successful, the most successful S&P 500 companies over that 20-year period didn't have the flashy CEO with a good suit that was great with media, that was super charismatic. It was typically someone that had been either promoted within the business, that understood the business well, but it was that quiet achiever, someone that loved and respected the people within the business, but that was you know numbers driven and empathetic. But the best way to explain what I believe servant leadership is, is a shift from being a boss to serving your team, right? So giving them a servant leader gives your team everything that they need to succeed, gives them everything, whether that means emotionally, your empathy, active listening, tools, all those things. But it's not just because you're a great bloke that you do those things. You do those things, yes, because you want to do the right thing by people. But then you also give yourself the license that you've done all those right things to have those difficult conversations. And it's understanding how you have those difficult conversations in a respectful way. You know, you know, always one-on-one, never in a group environment. You know, even with sales teams and when we look at results, you will never, in a sales meeting, for instance, I always recommend sales leaders never talk about the people that have got bad results in the sales meeting. Bring up the people with good results, but the people that have got bad results, they're going to see themselves on that screen, on that dashboard, in that meeting. That's enough. That's enough to to drive them. And then you have those difficult conversations one-on-one. And a servant leader is all about getting the best out of your team. And, you know, even if I was a horrible person, I would still be a servant, use servant leadership because I think it's the best way in the 21st century to get a team to perform the best. And I'll finish off on this thought if that's okay. So, you know, the leadership principles that most people are used to, you know, this, you got to be here by nine o'clock. And if you're late or if you take a sick day and all that kind of stuff is really hardcore. These were all founded in the 18th century in the industrial age, when if you were one minute late to work, the whole production line stopped, right? A thousand people couldn't work because you weren't there to pull the thing off the machine, right? Or whatever you're doing. So really important for you to be on time, right? So you could understand why they had this hardcore approach to, you know, to that kind of leadership style. And the power was in the employer's hand. 
we're in the knowledge economy now, not all industries, but you know, knowledge economy drives our economy now. And in that economy in the 21st century, leading in this way gets you the best results. And I truly believe that. All right. So Jim Collins' work from good to great, it's one of the most common answers to our rapid round. Maybe your answer too, when we get there, what, what's your favorite book? It comes up very often. And servant leadership is certainly a big part of what Collins talks about. And taking your definition here, shifting from being the boss to serving your team. Why do you think it works? I think it works because we have changed as people. You know, I don't subscribe to this, oh, the millennials and the Gen Zs, they're different and they don't work hard and they don't, you know, they don't take criticism and all this kind of stuff. First of all, even if all that was true, you saying that is not solving anything. You've got to try and find a way to make it work. I think I'm a Gen Y, I'm 42, and I'm the first of the Gen Ys, right? Like not young anymore. They're a major part of the workforce. So if you're not trying to find ways to work with Gen Ys, Gen Zs, Millennials, you're crazy, right? You, you need to find a way. The second of all, what I've found is that actually those people are really great employees, but they need to buy into what you're doing and they need to really believe in it. They're not someone that can come in, clock in, clock out typically. I'm sure there is, but generally they're not someone that does that. They really want to buy into something. And if they buy into it, they'll work hard. They'll ask a lot of questions. You know, they'll be the people out there that are working hard for you. And I think their reaction to the way they're managed is very different. I think these principles, this this, um, empathetic approach, collaborative approach works better with them. And it's not only business, you know, you look at the sporting world, you know, I'm a big soccer head, as I said before, Jose Mourinho uh, was a famous coach, won everything. He used to be this hardcore taskmaster, you know, and even he says now that uh, he coaches Roma in Italy and he talks about the change in mindset from the players and you can't do any of that anymore. And, you know, the lengths he goes to now to learn about his players, to understand their personal lives, all things that he would never have thought of, you know doing 15, 20 years ago, because he knows he's going to get the best out of those players by understanding what's important to them and then helping them reach their goals. It's the same with servant leadership. So the key things I'm hearing when you talk are around buy-in, around engagement, around ownership. And I'm going to say it's about then energy. Where do they put their energy? So if they feel like they're part of what's being developed, not being told what to do, but they've got some kind of I'll use the term I used before, skin in the game, where they feel that they're part of the journey, they're going to go above and beyond. They're not going to do the bare minimum. They're not going to just do enough to make sure they don't get fired and get their paycheck. They're going to go above and beyond because they feel like they're part of it. It's this kind of sense of love and belonging that I belong to something that's bigger than myself. How does that sit with you? Yeah. I mean, there's a saying that I always sort of think back on when I'm thinking about this kind of stuff. Um, And it goes a little bit like this. So it says, you pay employees to do their job, but they volunteer their best, right? So you think about that. Yeah, you pay them to do the job. Yeah, they've got to be there between this time and that time. And they've got to do a certain amount of product. Yeah, they've got to have a certain amount of productivity in that time. But if you want their best, they're volunteering that best, right? So if you are a good leader and you want maximum productivity and the best outcomes for your clients, and the best profit and the best whatever, then you need to find a way to get more people to volunteer their best. If someone's found a better way than servant leadership, I'm open to it. I'm not wedded to anything, but I've just found that this is the best way to engage people in in this day and age and get the best out of them. 
And, you know, I'll touch on, you know, I work servant leadership in conjunction with these two other philosophies that I've got. One of them is from the old Netflix days, which I don't condone a lot of the stuff that they do. In fact, they're probably illegal in labor laws in Australia, half of them. They run a business in a very specific way. But one of the things they do is great is this, I don't know if you've heard of this radical candor discussion. I, I sort of have a plan, I call it radical honesty. And it's just about if there's something that can be improved, it's your duty to bring that up with a person that can improve that thing and work together to improve it. You know, and that's low level to the CEO and vice versa. And in fact, whenever I implement this, a little trick I use is to try in the first weeks of someone starting in their role is to try and get them to give me some feedback. You know, so I try and pry it out of them one way or the other, because what that does is it starts them getting used to giving feedback in a respectful way. And we go through training programs on this because it can go wrong if people abuse this. But if you go through, if you do it properly and you follow the, the tenets in the right way, you know, one-on-one in private, do it respectfully, try and improve together then you're going to get way better results out of your team because everyone's looking to improve. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier. If you're not improving in business, your competitors are. So effectively, it means you're going backwards. You know, it's all about improvement, all about that, you know, that growth mindset improving. And then the second philosophy that I'm really big on is this philosophy of ultimate responsibility. Um, And what that means is that every task, every team, every business unit, and then the whole company with the CEO, someone is ultimately responsible for everything. So if you're running a project, there's a project manager, they're ultimately responsible. They might have 10 people working in that project with them. But at the end of the day, something goes wrong, they're responsible. And it's not about blame. It's not about blame. It's about having responsibility so that we know that there's one person that's going to make that final decision that's moving that project or that thing forward. And if you mix in the servant leadership qualities with some accountability, you know, and then that constant improvement with radical honesty, then I've just found that creates a really good environment for a growing team. So there's three really key takeaways I take there, Bill. The first one, I love what you said, you pay people to do their job, but they volunteer to do their best. And I think that sums up a lot of what's happening in the world of quiet quitting, by the way. So quiet quitting is something that's heavily misunderstood, by the way, here in Australia, you're in Australia as well. It was reported by the media and debunked where people said, oh, people are still working even more hours than they were before. People aren't quite quitting. Quite quitting is exactly what you just said. You know, you pay people to do a job, but they volunteer to do their best. The difference between doing their job and doing their best, that is what quite quitting is. Are they fully psychologically engaged in the workplace and doing their very best work? Or are they just showing up and doing the bare minimum? That's what quite quitting is all about. Yeah, great. It's disengagement, isn't it? They're not engaged. Yeah. And then the second one, you mentioned before that it's not about, you didn't use this exact term, so I'm going to use it now. It's not about having a pillow environment. Radical candor is about, and this is great work from Kim Scott, this is about having those challenging conversations, but coming from a place of care. It's coming from a place of care. You care about that individual so much that you're going to give them this feedback despite your fear of the uncomfortable conversation that you're about to have. So having that psychological safety, having that openness where people can have high candor, low fear, and have those conversations because they come from a place of love and care. And then the third one around ultimate responsibility, right? So where's the accountability? Where's the ownership? Having that one person, they don't have to do everything, but having that one person that sees something through to conclusion. I think that's three lovely takeaways there, Bill. I think one of the most important parts of being a leader is being able to have difficult conversations in a respectful way where everyone comes out of that discussion better, not worse, right? Not feeling bad about themselves. Yeah, go on. And it doesn't serve, I'll use the term, it doesn't serve anyone to not have the conversation. 
And it doesn't serve anyone to have that conversation disrespectfully. And the, the middle ground is exactly it. It's having that respectful conversation that must be had. Yeah, really good. So tell me, what does servant leadership look like to you on a day-to-day basis, Bill? Yeah, so, you know, one thing that I think honed in my servant leadership skills was COVID because, you know, it was when, before COVID, it was pretty easy just to pull someone aside. You know, you walk past them and you're like, I haven't spoken to Jenny in a while. You know, you grab her and you go and have a chat to Jenny, you grab a coffee or something. I think COVID, what that made me, me do anyway, is structure a lot of that because I wasn't just walking past Jenny anymore. I had to actually make an effort to call or to... So I have my normal meeting cadence that I've got. So, you know, normally the way I normally work is, you know, team meetings early in the week, Monday, Tuesday, middle of the week, one-on-ones, you know, end of the week check-ins. So, and the check-in for me, well, it became a structured process, not a, you know, when I walk past Jenny or whatever. So now it's, you know, a phone call every single time. And really being structured is important in servant leadership, but also just understanding your employees, each individually. Is, is so, so important. So, you know, each leader, you know, and having an understand, a really deep understanding of each person within their business, giving them flexibility, but also having high expectations. And those things can be worked together. You know, they can work together. In fact, I've found that the more flexibility I give, the more expectations I can have because they understand that, yeah, hey, I've got this flexibility now, so I have to deliver. So I think that they're, they're all into important parts of how I deliver servant leadership. And I've talked about this a couple of times now, but it's that fine line between empathy, being there for someone, caring for them, and making sure that we're all working together to get the results we need as a business, right? Servant leadership isn't an affront to capitalism. You know, it's not like we don't want to make money. It's in fact the opposite. You want to do better as a business. And by doing better, you understand that the only way you're going to do better is by improving your employees. I love a quote, so I'll throw another one at you now. And Richard Branson says, your clients aren't the most important thing, your staff are. You look after your staff, they'll look after the clients. And that's so true. You know, Looking after your team, making sure that they feel valued and part of the process, um, and then they'll look after the rest of it. So there's a few things I'm taking away, Bill, and I want to kind of build a story here, a little bit of everything that we've been talking about from the very beginning. And one of the key things here is think about the conversation we had at the start about bringing people around you that have got complementary skills that you don't have, right? So you're out there, you're employing these people because they know how to do something that you don't know how to do. Otherwise, you wouldn't have employed them, right? You're employing them for their brain, you're employing them for their skills, you're employing them for their experience. So why on earth would you bring them into the building and just start telling them what to do? They almost should be telling you what to do in their field, in their area of expertise. And then what I'm hearing as the story builds, Bill, is, is that you're then intentionally, and taking your point that COVID maybe pointed you to make it even more intentional, that you're then intentionally going out of your way to show people that you care about them. because. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. So you show intentionally showing that you're caring about them. And then you're going out of your way to create an environment where they can do their very best work. So you're bringing in people who've got the skills that you need. You're showing them that they care about you because they will return that in spades. And then you're doing the things that are needed to give them the environment where they can do their very best work. How does that sit with you? Yeah, no, 100%. You know, finding the right people is difficult. So if you do find that right person and you run the right recruit person, you know they're the right person or a very high chance they are, then why on earth wouldn't you give them the reins to what they need to do to make it successful? 
And then it's your job as a leader to have the right accountability measures in place. And that goes all the way from, you know, when you're first recruiting them, setting expectations, making sure your job roles are tight, making sure you're built the KPIs in a way that are most suitable to you and the business. And, you know, I always say KPIs should be a mix of financial metrics. You know, you've got to do this thing to get that thing, but it should also be what's important to you. So if you're a services business, for instance, you know, if you haven't got MPS or some other client satisfaction rating tool as a KPI, you really should. In fact, most businesses should, but especially if you're in the services industry. You know, we, the bond conveyance in the law firm, Morella, her main metric is NPS. That's the main thing we talk about in our one-on-ones. And then, you know, the showing them that you care bit can be done in a lot of ways. First of all, you have to genuinely care. Like you have to, this is not a business process, you know? You should care about them, not only because they're going to give you great results, but because they're humans and, you know, you obviously got some affinity for them. But also, you know, I just think about how I run my regular meetings and, you know, even in our one-on-ones, the first question, and I give this to all my clients about how to run their one-on-ones, the first question I ask is not what's your, you know, biggest challenge or the first question I always ask is how are you feeling about things right now? Not how are you doing, not how are you feeling about things right now? First of all, it's an open question. They can answer it really positively. If they're feeling positive about things, they'll talk positive. If they're feeling negative about things, they'll tell you what's challenging. And it just gives them the opportunity to talk and to be open and to tell you how they're feeling, not just how they're doing from a you know, numbers perspective. And again, it's not touchy-feely. You know? I'm not doing that because you know, it's Kumbaya. We're going to go do some yoga together afterwards. It's you know, even though it's all great, but um, it's really about how am I going to help them be the best they can be? And I need to understand where they're at emotionally to be able to do that. Yeah, really good. Great opening question. And that's not the first time that you've said those words as well, that you're helping them to be the best they can be. All right. So yeah, really good. Bill, another question I want to ask, maybe to close this out before we go to the rapid round. There may be people listening to this and going, yeah, I've heard about all of this. I've heard about servant leadership. I want to give it a go, but I don't know how to start. How does someone dip their toe into the water? Look, um, first thing I always say is, you know, getting external help and engaging me, I'm more than happy to help. But if, if, I was, if I'm doing it, and this is the way I did it, you know, I'm self-learned with everything that I do, just go out and have an interest in it. Learn about it. You know, if they're listening to this podcast, it's a start. You've talked about it before. What other things can they listen to, read, watch on the subject? There's some really, really good YouTube videos around this subject. And just get a really good understanding. And then your next step from there is, okay, now I know exactly what servant leadership is. I know I have an idea of how it's going to work in my business. How do I actually execute on it? You know, what does that look like in practice? And I know you've asked me a couple of times about what I do with it and I've thrown around a few things and maybe they could use those as as a guide, a starting point. But really, you need to look at, you know, your industry type of business, life cycle stages. There's a lot of things you've got to look at, the kind of people that you're managing. And then, you know, if you're a CEO of a 10,000 employee company and your CFO and the COO are certain type of people, maybe you need to do less of the, you know, some things than you do with uh, an employee who's maybe, you know, Gen Z, just come out of high school or university, and maybe you need to work with them in a different way. So it's very, very specific. But to start with the principle of, hey, I should care about these people. And if I care about them, they're going to do better. And then just learn as much as you can. Mm. So the takeaways I'm taking there are basically like a learn, do, reflect. So we're going to learn. We're going to go out there and we're going to practice it a bit. And we're going to reflect and notice what happens. And a little bit of adaptive leadership there. So 
making sure that you're having a look at who is in your team and what will serve them best because a 20-year veteran CFO has got different needs to a three-year graduate engineer, for example, right? Okay, yeah, very good. Yeah, this goes back to just to anything in business. You need to adapt and improve and customise the approach. The reason I always talk about data and being data-driven as a leader, not because, you know, there's a lot of reasons you should be data-driven, but the most important one is to find ways to improve, you know? So if you don't measure something and something goes wrong, how do you know what went wrong and how do you know how to improve it? So just being adaptive and testing and learning, you know, I hate people that talk in absolutes. I hate people that say, this is what worked for us in the past. You know, all that is just nonsense to me. You know, you've got to measure it and things will change even then. So you're going to have to adapt. Something that worked last month may not work in six months time, but you need to adapt and learn. So yeah, adapt and learn. That's great takeaway right there. It's like a daily experiment. And, you know, you're going to keep on working on your craft every day. And even what works for you today might not work for you three months from now. So you need to be adapting and changing as you go along as well. Yeah. And you should be like super happy when you've proved yourself wrong, you know, like or someone else has proved you wrong because it means you're improving, right? It means if someone proves you wrong, it means they found something that you could do better. You should be tapping them on the shoulder, you know? Yeah. Good one, Bill. All right, so that's probably a good time now to take us to our rapid round. So these are the same four questions we ask all of our guests. So firstly, what's the one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? That being nice and doing the right thing are two, sometimes two different things, you know. Sometimes being nice is not the right thing to do. Yeah. Let me nail that one home a little bit more because we touched on it before. And this is the same thing, right? So let's say that you've got a member of your team that's done a presentation. And you know what? It wasn't their best work. It wasn't their best work. And they might even have a repeated pattern of making the same mistakes in their presentation time and time again. Being nice, in Bill's word, would be have the person comes off the stage and applaud them and go, wow, that was just so amazing. You're a really good presenter. Is that going to serve them? Is that going to serve them that they'll then go and repeat that mistake for the rest of their life, do the same little idiosyncrasy or whatever it is that's impacting their presentations for the rest of their life? Or is showing care to be able to pull them inside and go, you know what, did a really good job there and this part was good, but do you know, every time you transition, blah, 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 you're doing this. And it may be that conversation that someone needed to have with them for them to be aware of that mistake that they're making so that they can correct them. That's the difference between nice and care. Yeah, and that is the perfect example of actually doing the wrong thing by someone. I would say that your inability to have that discussion with them is you've done the wrong thing by them, you know. And I think I use the term a lot, you know, the right thing, especially in sales teams. I mean, if you're a salesperson and you don't believe that the client across from you is worse off if they don't buy your product, you know, the right thing for you is to do everything you can to help them buy the product, right? So it's just the right thing in business is, you know, is a mindset. And it goes, that's such a good example of, you know, in the past, I would have done that. I would have probably, you know, just not wanted to upset them and maybe try to find a way to, you know, try and improve their presentation without actually having a difficult conversation. Whereas now I know that, you know, doing it in a really respectful way, I mean, pulling them aside, analyzing it, you know, giving the points, you know, in a respectful way to help them improve. The right people will take that in the right way. The wrong people won't, but you don't want them anyway. Yeah, very good. All right, perfect. Now, now what's your favorite book? I'm going to guess it's Jim Collins, Good to Great, but I love reading. I watch movies for fiction and I read nonfiction. That's my thing. But I'm going to throw one out. I bet you not many people have told you about this one, but one of the first books I read, and I reckon I've read it seven or eight times, is a tiny book, but it got me 
so passionate about business and it's Screw It, Let's Do It by Richard Branson. Every time I'm feeling a bit, you know, unmotivated, I pick that book up. You can read it in a night or two and just such a fun. I love his spirit. I love like someone that just wants to be, you know, hardcore successful, but also just fun loving and, you know, and not like does the, wants to do the right thing by his people. And that's the kind of philosophy that I, I subscribe to. So. Yeah. Good one. All right. So what's your favorite quote? Yeah, I guess it's that I'm going to say that. So I've already said it to you now. So let's think of another one, but that, you know, employees, you're paid employees to do their job, but they volunteer their best. I reckon people are sick of me telling them that when managers talk to me about one of their team members that maybe isn't performing. I bring that out a lot, but honestly, it's a a massive part of how I think about leadership. That one quote drives a lot of my decision-making. It's my big takeaway from today's discussion, for sure, Bill. And because of everything we said before, it sums up leadership. It also sums up what's going on with quiet quitting when it goes the other way. So, yeah, really good. And finally, if people want to know more about you or about Levels and about the work that you do, how do people get in contact with you? Yeah, LinkedIn or, or Instagram, just Bill Nico 10 at Bill Nico 10 is my call. Or you can go to levelsgc.com and see me there. So, you know, we do keynote speaking, training for corporates and keynote speaking for small businesses and corporates. And then we do sort of executive coaching and growth consulting. So the consulting, like I said earlier, in the, in the larger businesses or, you know, larger small businesses, that makes sense. And then for the small business owners, the executive coaching. Yeah, great. Well, thank you, Bill Nicola Zarkas. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your wisdom, your experiences and your insights. Really appreciated our discussion. And I know the audience will as well. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calabo and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.